0: Alex, what biscuit would you be?
1: Oh God, Um, I always, said, oh this is so lame, I always said a bourbon because I had prepped this actually because uh, you know what you're getting, it's always dependable, Um, so a bourbon.
2: You said I always said I'd be a bourbon, do you mean say that you've been asked more than once which biscuit you'd like to be? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) Even now, even now oh we're friends, eh? <laughs> or in podcasts. <laughs> oh,
2: quiz. yeah. I'm Beatrice Collier and I'm Georgina Wolfe and this is the Pupillage Podcast brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. It's a podcast for anyone considering a career as a barrister from students at school, university or on the law conversion or bar course. It's for those contemplating a career change later in life and wondering what it might entail. And it's for the army of pupillage applicants out there. From those applying for pupillage for the first time to the battle weary, giving it just one last go.
0: We know that at times the search for pupillage can seem daunting. So in each episode, we talk to junior barristers, fresh from their own pupillages, members of pupillage committees, senior barristers, QCs, judges, masters of the bench, and lots of other guests, and ask them for their advice, what to do, what to avoid, and how to succeed. All that hard work on your applications has paid off and you have been invited to interview.
2: It's an important victory, but there's still a long way to go before securing a pupillage.
0: You'll start wondering, what sort of questions will they ask me? What can I do to prepare? How can I cope with problem questions, advocacy exercises, ethical problems? What should I wear? Should I ask questions myself? How can I manage my nerves? All these questions will be crowding
2: into your brain. Our guests this episode are here to help with these difficult issues and to offer their tips on what to say when you're asked, if you're a biscuit, which
0: biscuit would you be? We spoke to Elizabeth Duomo of Lamb Chambers about applications last episode. Here she is telling us about interviews. Liz Duomo, some of our applicants will hopefully get pupillage interviews. Yes. They get a call saying, or an email saying that they've got an interview, what should they do?
3: First of all, congratulate yourself because you've reached that stage you know you're good on paper so pat on the back well done read through that email read through that letter very carefully make notes date time location sounds basic but actually sometimes people just forget that so do that um also read the the invitation letter just to see what kind of hints it gives you. Sometimes it tells you is it a one stage or two stage interview? Sometimes it'll tell you whether it's a panel interview, whether it's a panel of two or more. That can also help and See if that's a problem question.
0: I distinctly remember having one interview that I thought I had a a really good nugget that I was going to use and save up in the second round. And there wasn't a second round, it was (laughs) a one-round interview and I'd saved this this thing up and I didn't realise until after I had gone home that I was never going to get the (laughs) chance to show off. (laughs) oh dear
2: and in terms <laughs> of so, so in terms of in terms of no it's just funny because it's just kind of like the silly things we do
3: yeah, it's true <laughs> yeah
2: in, in, in terms then of what sort of once, once you've worked out okay it's definitely in my iPhone with several <laughs> reminders <Good. laughs> what sort of steps should people be taking in order to prepare for the big day
3: I always say tackle it like an exam so preparation is key research your chambers um, and there is such a wealth of information that you can access be it the website which is for me the primary tool to use Um, you can look things like chambers and partners or the legal 500 ask your friends they may have um, friends who are part of that set ask for that information but definitely when you're looking for example at the website look to see how many members there are, look to see um, what areas of law they specialise in, look at the news section, look to see if they've got a newsletter, for example, look to see if they tweet. All of those tools will give you a bit of flavour as to what chambers you're applying to and what kind of um, cases they've been involved in recently. And that really assists because when it comes to the actual interviews, some of the questions that come up, are also based on things that Chambers do in-house that you might want to know. Also look at the pupilage page to see if there's any further information that you can garner from that. Um, people tend to forget to do that, surprisingly, but yeah. there's information there that will help you. Um, also, I always think people forget to do this, but dig out your application. <laughs> it's been a while. Good, good point, yeah. <laughs> we forget. <laughs> We're only human. Liz, you said
2: that you, uh, at your set there's a legal problem Mm. what sort of advice have you got for people to help them tackle this
3: most of our legal problems are usually based on things that are current so current cases or cases that have been in the news so yeah keep your eyes and ears open read um, the Times supplement law supplement Read um, cases that have popped up on Lawtel recently, Westlaw. You've got access to those tools, hopefully, through either Bar School or your university. So access. Go on to Chamber's website. See what cases members have been involved in recently. That might give you a hint as to some of the basis of the problem questions. I think students
0: often forget how busy barristers are. And actually, very often, the week of the interviews, we sit down and think, gosh, what on earth can we ask? (laughs) And we think about what cases we've all been involved in or what's been in the news last week.
3: Exactly that's what we do but I'd also say um, just on the back of that in terms of some of the predictable questions more and more often I'm finding we're asking about business development so marketing what can you bring to the mix oh interesting yes so yeah I think you also have to be more business-minded marketing focused and definitely I think definitely for me as a barrister that's something i've been learning on the on the job but i'm finding actually candidates are a bit more savvy than what i was when i made my application so yeah so think about that as well are you someone who's a natural writer would you be happy to contribute to the newsletter do you tweet do you blog all of that
0: oh, that's a really good that's great advice the other thing i think that puts fear into the hearts of pupillage candidates are <laughs> advocacy questions <laughs> and advocacy um Advocacy
3: exercises. You're bringing back a nightmare from one of my interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us all about it. <laughs> um, I was given an option of, I think, five um, different, and they were non-related, actually, areas to choose from. So the, the only two I remember, because these were the ones I thought these are the only things I can possibly answer, was about NATO and then Olympics. And I just thought to myself my mind went completely blank as to everything I learned in history (laughs) and my NATO um, exam. So I chose the Olympics. I thought, why? (laughs) I know nothing (laughs) about the Olympics. Um, But actually, when I got home, stopped beating myself up and thought about it, actually all the um, options they gave me were based on either what I would have ordinarily studied at school, because they were all from my choices at A-level, GCSE. And actually the Olympics was such current news <laughs> so yeah I think when it comes to advocacy exercises um, it's a question of again looking to see what's going on in the news look at your CV um, in terms of preparing for legal questions um, yeah I think you've got to be very clear if it's certain applications that you make for example if it's a criminal set bail applications come up often um, if it's um, civil well just any kind of um, basic summary judgment application. These are the things that you can look for. Access to that, advocacy manual, bar school. If you are at university, just see if you're, yeah, either your university library or if you've got access to the INS, they'll let you borrow a copy. Things like that can help. So actually, advocacy exercises
0: kind of come into two camps. One is something like a question about the Olympics, you know, persuade us that the Olympics should be held in London again. But also it could be something like a bail application or a plea mitigation that is a formal advocacy exercise where you have to stand up and address a court. Yes. So for that second type of advocacy exercise where it is a formal process, is there any way that you can revise that that you can think of?
3: Practice in advance. Um, usually those applications, for example, um, they're very formulaic. So learn the basics, how to address your judge, for example, your audience. Um, I'm not sure if it's still on the .gov website, but they used to provide you with a really helpful list of all the different modes of address for the judiciary. That's yes, amazing. It's still there. I had I recommend it.
2: for a Section 9 judge the other, the other
3: day. Wow. Key. I, I find it yeah. really useful. So look for that kind of information to help you out so get your modes of dress right again um yeah read your manuals your basketball manuals um ask a friend if they will run through it with you time yourself don't waffle time yourself oh, that's great advice i think sometimes with the advocacy exercises
2: what's important is for you to feel confident when you're doing it that you're going to be able to do something so it's about doing the preparation beforehand so that when you're confronted with the particular exercise that you're required to do it's not necessarily that you very happily had just practiced one of those yesterday (laughs) but it's more that you think that's okay i've got this yeah and um i can i i know that i want to make three points and i'm going to make them nicely and It's that sort of preparation, in a way it's sort of more sort of psychological preparation that will help you perform well
0: when it comes to interview.
3: I agree absolutely, Beatrice.
0: I, I think there's nothing wrong either with preparing yourself some crib sheets. You're going to probably have 20 minutes alone in a room to prepare your advocacy exercise or your problem question. And if you've got brought notes in with you, I don't think that that's something that you can or should be criticised for it's not a memory test if you're going to court you can have notes in front of you so I think one thing that students often don't think about because they think of it as if it's a closed book exam but actually you can take in a copy of the white book if, that, if that's what you think will assist you absolutely absolutely one other thing that might happen in your pupilage interview is you might get thrown an ethical problem mm. how do you know how to spot an ethical problem
3: one of my colleagues will say it's the sniff test. If it doesn't smell right, then yeah, it's probably an ethical question. <laughs> um, and so I think ethical questions are common sense, you know? If something just doesn't feel right within yourself, then it's probably got an ethical angle. Take time and just try and figure out well, what it is that you're being required to do. Usually, I find with most ethical questions, you've got to think of your duties. It's your duties to the court, to the client to your solicitors to yourself to, or to your, your setting and yourself so it's usually that way based and so yeah just just take
0: stop for a moment and those duties come in a, in a hierarchy so if you work out where you are in the hierarchy that exactly. might exist exactly that's good advice
2: what about advice for presentation and what I mean by that is what what you're what you're wearing um, do you have strong feelings about that perhaps perhaps you don't but
3: I think you're you're entering a professional environment. So dress professionally. Um, we all work dark suits. So wear something that's, yeah, in the key, in keeping with that. Um, something that you're comfortable in. Because if, if you're not comfortable, then I think that comes across. So don't wear your newest shoes that are just pinching your feet. Don't do that. You're not helping yourself. Um, if you're prone to playing with your hair, for example, tie it back. Keep it out of your face. Um, yeah, I think... Those are the things that I I usually think when it comes to dress. Yeah, just be professional. Remember, you're you're trying to impress. So don't wear clothes that don't impress. Yeah, look the part. Look the part, yeah. But can I say one thing? Please Please do. do. Please arrive early. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And actually, if you've got an interview in one of the Inns of Court at a weekend yeah. the main doors are locked and i remember one incredibly stressful interview where i turned up i'd actually gone for a coffee beforehand because i was so confident that i was there early and i then strolled along to the chambers and found that i couldn't get in through the main door oh. and i had a very sweaty journey around the periphery of the inn trying to get in so make sure you know how to access the inns at weekends
2: good tip <laughs> lovely thanks ever so much liz
3: it's been such a pleasure thank you for having me thank you, thank you.
2: Mostacci, welcome to the Pupillage podcast. Thanks ever so much for joining us today. It's my very great pleasure. Could you start by telling our listeners a
4: little bit about who you are and what do you do? I was called to bar in 1981. So long track record. I've been a silk for nearly 10 years. Um, I started my life um, doing a real mixed bag of work, as a lot of us did in those days. But more recently, I've become quite highly specialist. um, And the work that I now do, and the work that I've done since I've been in silk, um, is predominantly high net worth divorces. So I get Prada stomping people (laughs) asking for (laughs) lots of money and difficult payers, protesting that they are broke. So there's a real forensic analysis that I have to undertake in the work that I do, which is what I find really fascinating. How fabulous. Well, I know you spent many
0: years on your chamber's pupillage committee. I did. And we wanted to ask you about pupillage interviews. So our listeners have now been got one of those wonderful emails that says that they've been invited
4: for a pupillage interview. What should they do next? They need to prepare themselves I think it is very important to be able to intelligently discuss the issues that surround the practice area that you are applying for. I mean, uh, at the moment, I mean, if I were to be interviewing now, I would expect people to be absolutely on top of the divorce reform debate that is going on, for example. So absolutely stay on top of what's going on in the legal press.
2: That's one avenue of questions, the sort of current affairs, if I can put it like that, the current legal affairs. There are also, I think it's probably right to say, some other questions that are quite reliably going to be asked in pupillage interviews, such as uh, what did you learn from your mini pupillages? Why did you want to be a barrister? Uh, Have you got any advice for our listeners that you can share about how to tackle those sorts of questions?
4: It's very important to be able to talk intelligently about something that you did in a mini-pupillage. Do please remind yourself who you went to court with, what you did, what the case was about. Because, again, whether it's nerves, I don't know, but I have asked somebody in an interview, um, who did you shadow and what did you see? Um, And you need to be immediately able to respond to that in an intelligent way. And I might ask for an opinion about the way the case went so think through those answers.
2: That's interesting to hear you say that because in an earlier episode we talked to people about mini pupilages and some of the advice that we heard was that it's a sensible idea at the time when you do your mini pupillage to write down who you were with, what you saw and in particular what it was that you thought about and what you learned from it so that uh, when it comes to preparing for the questions that, as you've just outlined, there's actually some raw material to
4: work with. I think that's absolutely excellent advice to keep a mini-pupillage diary and put as much detail as you can reasonably put down because then that will trigger some thoughts that you can discuss when you're going for your interview.
0: One of the areas that applicants are most nervous about are legal questions whether they be legal problem questions or questions about a particular case do you have any advice for preparing
4: for and answering those sorts of questions again you're likely to get asked on a legal problem basis something that's very specific to the area that you are dealing with i mean we send out our legal problems in advance so nothing gets you know catapulted onto the table at the last minute. So people have got the opportunity to think it through. Now, we don't expect you to be able to articulate it as if you were in the Supreme Court, but, um, I mean, there's one particular example where we were interviewing somebody who had no family law experience at all She had some very interesting ideas about the problem that we posed. And what I want to see is not just in legal analysis, but how somebody goes about unpacking the problem. So don't worry, there there may well be no right answer, and that may well be why you've been given that particular problem. So it's very much more for me about the thought process that goes into how you look at a problem rather than coming up with a right inverted commas answer because there probably isn't one.
0: And and on that point one thing I certainly experienced in interviews was I would give my answer that I thought was right and then I would be asked a very challenging question that suggested that my answer was entirely wrong and the temptation is to flip-flop between positions. Mm. Do you think that you should change your view in the middle of an
4: interview or do you think it's best to stick to your guns? There is nothing wrong with acknowledging an alternative argument, but equally well then try and come at the problem from a different angle that would potentially support the outcome that you were advocating whilst acknowledging that there was an alternative proposition. It's all about how people think on their feet. Master what about advocacy exercises in interview
2: Have you any advice for candidates how they can calm their
4: nerves and perform to their best? Prepare well if you've been given your advocacy exercise in advance, obviously. But I think that if you were to, and I've seen this happen, people bring in copious notes with them and they almost get bogged down in their yellow tabs, it would be far better if that it's almost a less is more so rather than be stuck on your script be prepared to be rather more fluid and relaxed now i know people like the comfort blanket of having notes and yellow stickies but it doesn't necessarily portray you with the best advocacy style i see so
2: you would perhaps encourage our listeners to Have the confidence to take a bit of time once they've finished working out how they're going to approach it, just to settle into that approach so that they can be confident in
4: delivering it when they get to perform the advocacy exercise. Absolutely. Practice it. I tell people that there is no case that you can't get on one A4 sheet of paper and you can do it in bullet points. So that is what you want to distill the process down to if you can. And you're going to be far more confident, I think, if you've done your homework but you've got six bullet points on one sheet of
2: paper. I think it's also right to say that you may be interrupted by your by your judge, your so-called judge, in the advocacy exercise who, who may challenge you. And
4: it's easier, isn't it, to be flexible if you've got bullet points rather no, than sticking to a script. Absolutely. And you have got to be prepared to go off-piste. You've absolutely got to be prepared to, because, again, it comes back to the thinking on your feet. Can you deal with those interjections? How do you cope with it? And if you are just rote reading or remembering it will not come over fluidly which is not what's being looked for ethical questions are very often quite easy
0: to spot anything that makes you feel a bit uncomfortable is probably an ethical dilemma tucked away
4: in a, in a question but how do you go about answering them the ethical problems usually your gut is going to be right if it stinks, there's probably a rotten fish around somewhere. So just be alive to that. And there is no shame whatsoever in saying, as far as I'm concerned, I'm really uncomfortable with the scenario, and I bring up the BSB because that's what even really experienced people do. Or you go and talk to some senior in chambers. You don't necessarily have to have the right answer to that ethical problem. It's more about having your antennae attuned to the fact that they're is a problem, and then understanding where you can get the answer to it. And that may well be a senior silking chambers, your head of chambers, or the BSB.
0: Yeah, that's really good advice. So we've talked about legal problems and advocacy and ethical problems. What other types of questions might
4: candidates be asked? I always ask the value-added question. Oh, what's that? Right, the value-added question. The CVs that I see have... Brilliant academic results, they both at secondary and tertiary level. There are very often people with really scholarly theses that they have done. They've all done mini pupilages. So I always find that the most interesting part of any CV is what I call the value-added, it's the bit at the end. And it's really interesting to get people talking about their value-added bit. And when I'm asked about this, I always cite one person who I interviewed who said on his CV that he'd done the Mongol Rally, just sort of a one-liner. <laughs> so I thought, this is really exciting. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to talk about the Mongol So I asked him, I said, what was the most challenging thing that happened to you on the Mongol Rally? She goes, well, there were two things. I said, I asked you for one. I said, well, <laughs> there were actually two. So he immediately came back... And I said, all right, tell us about the two. And he was so engaging in his recounting of the challenges of these two situations. And I thought, you have just persuaded me to listen to you about two things when I asked you for one. And you've done it in such an engaging way. If you can bring a judge round, the way you've just brought me and my committee round, you're going to make an impressive advocate. He got his... he got his tenancy and he's now a very successful member of our chambers.
0: Oh, what a wonderful story. Are there any common mistakes that you have seen in interviews that you would warn against?
4: Yes.
2: (laughs) Seems like there might be quite a long list there. Please do share because everyone is anxious
4: to avoid these pitfalls. Right. The first thing... Now, this sounds so basic and fundamental, but it is really important the way you come into the room. Do please... Be positive without being pushy. Um, How do you do that? Well, <laughs> it's all about demeanour. There was one person, again, I can, I can exemplify this um, by using somebody that we, we interviewed a couple of years ago, who had the, the most brilliant CV. But the minute this person walked into the room, it was quite clear that this person was never going to be able, we concluded, to be an advocate and be the sort of positive people person that you need to be in my business, you know, to poke an oligarch between the eyes and say, you know, you will do this. Because of the demeanour when this person walked in, it was hunched, it was mouse-like, there was nothing open and expansive. It was somebody who, as I say, brilliant, brilliant on paper but was never going to be that people person or certainly didn't portray any evidence of being a people person. So just think of the immediate impression that you are going to make when you walk into the room. And look the part. Look the part. Um, you know, you don't have to spend a fortune on Armani suit. You can look the part, you know, on a, on a student budget. Yes. And that is really important. And, um Make sure you look neat, smart and business-like.
2: Master Hussie, I have to ask, are there any more don'ts? Because I, <laughs> I, really,
4: I, have to, I really enjoyed the last one. <laughs> any more don'ts? Um, any more don'ts? Yes. One thing that really annoys me is talking with your hands. People you, you ought to know by the time you get to interview stage because of the advocacy training that you've had, is that you do not talk with your hands. Now, I know a lot of news readers do it, but just because it's good for the BBC, it is not good for court, and it's certainly not good for interview. It's distracting, um, and it's amateur. Don't do it.
0: And it's terrible for podcasts.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not doing it.
0: (laughs) Um, May I just ask that you've given us some brilliant um, pitfalls. Are there any things that particularly impress you in interview?
4: Focus and
0: eloquence. Fantastic. Before we end, is there any advice or any words of encouragement that you'd like to pass on to our listeners?
4: Don't be deterred. If you feel you've had a setback, you know, we all have bad days. You know, so, really re energise and refocus your energies um, and go for it because if you really want it, you can make it happen. That's
2: fantastic advice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, welcome. Alexis Neros to the Pupillage podcast. Could you tell our listeners please a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Uh, Yes so I was called to the bar by Middle Temple in 2015. I now practice in public law at number five chambers uh, based in London.
2: 2015 that sounds to me like you may have relatively recently compared to some of our guests have gone through the pupillage process would I be right
1: yes absolutely so the the scars are still fresh (laughs) wonderful (laughs) I say crying that's
2: what we like to hear
0: (laughs) (laughs) perfect well let's let's kick off with talking about pupillage interviews so um our listeners have been invited for a pupillage interview they're nervous what should they do first
1: uh, well, I've written a little note to myself saying, first of all, you should pat yourself on the back because actually, the the first stage of getting through, the sift is so difficult, uh, and everyone will know that there's hundreds of thousands of millions of people um, going through this process. So, so very well done for getting this far. Um, in terms of prep, I think uh, for interview. Um, I know that it's incredibly important to look at the Chamber's website, but of course websites are only one aspect of how Chambers will market themselves. Um, So what I did, especially um, knowing that I wanted to do public law, was look at how the Chambers have been involved in um, not, not only cases, but rather you know, the, the, the big legal questions that, um, are being answered. Actually, it's incredibly useful to have the websites there because they obviously present what chambers want you to see. But I found looking on news websites, uh, I know BBC or the Guardian legal websites was incredibly useful as well because some chambers are involved in cases that are reported, um, especially in public law. So that was useful to see how chambers are, are, are making a difference in the legal world. Um, I especially found it useful to look at the junior members of chambers and what their caseload was. Because when it comes to interview, you'll be asked questions like, why do you want to do this area of law? And if you can say, well, I've seen your junior members are engaged in the upper tribunal and I can see, you know, your 2014 um, member was actually in the Court of Appeal. That's amazing. I want to be involved in high profile cases early on in my career. It makes it a bit more personal than just I see you do public law. I want to do public law. Pick me, um, which doesn't go down that well, apparently.
2: It seems, it seems to me that it's also probably a good tip for our listeners to make sure that they look over their application form because it's likely to be some time since they've, with relief, pressed the submit button if, if they're a gateway set or the send button for other applications. Do you agree that, that that's another important first step
1: absolutely so i think there's two things to this the first is you've filled out this quite detailed application form and once it's in i'm told it's sort of like pregnancy though i wouldn't know that once you've done it your body tells you to forget about what it was like at the time and so that you want to do it again almost so uh,
5: what a great analogy i'm going to take that out um, so look, I've
1: i have definitely got to stay in I would, I would say that yes it's incredibly important to look back at what you. you've did because you might not remember it as well as you probably think you do um i've got an example of this that actually i filled in my number five where i'm at application form and then put it to bed uh, for a little while then got called to interview i obviously reviewed the application form but it's the minutiae that they really pick up on because barristers are um people who do this for a living, so uh, be, be prepared to defend every little word that you use in your application form. As an example of this, in my final round for number five, um, I was ticking along nicely answering legal questions, and then the final question after an hour of cross-examination from 10 you know, very eminent barristers was, I see in your application form you took up ballroom dancing at university. Um, you now have five minutes to convince us all that we should ballroom dance, and I hadn't I hadn't done ballroom dancing for a very long time, and so having to defend that as a skill and a hobby on my feet was quite interesting. Um, so I think, although you will have to defend the big bits, the big ticket items on your CV, like your first or um, your exceptional, you know, dissertation mark or whatever, you also be prepared to defend the little things that you don't think anyone could possibly take an interest in, um, because that that can often throwing you off a little bit.
0: Can you predict in advance some of the questions you're going to be asked?
1: You have the obvious ones I think. So you have the why do you want to be a barrister, Uh, why us and basically why you. Um, So those are the obvious ones and I think it's important that you prepare a stock answer to those. Um, I say stock answer but stock answer in the sense that you have a structure that you can work around because I know when I sat down to write my Um, answers to those questions I did a very detailed A4 piece of paper answer for for each of the questions so for example why do you want to be a barrister I wrote that at the top of the page in a nice colour pen and then wrote out what my answer was to that the danger of that is that you become a bit too um, rehearsed uh, and of course they don't want to see that they they want to see your ability to answer on your feet uh, but also come up with a good answer so to combat that I think in my next few interviews after the first one all I did was I put bullet points and three bullet points for each question so why do you want to be a barrister I want to be a barrister because one two and three obviously that wasn't how I presented it but I think it was useful to to have a structure from which you could hang your answer rather than just repeating the answer or reading it out rather
2: it seems like I think that's probably a good tip for interviews in particular because obviously there's an element of nerves and adrenaline and so if you have got little nuggets or modules to your answer then it probably makes it easier to remember them and also to be flexible if the if the questions put slightly differently
1: well yes uh, and I think some um, chambers that I interviewed at certainly they they wanted not to trip you up cuz that would be mean but they wanted to see how you reacted to an unusual question and an easy way of doing that is to ask, ask not you know why do you want to be a barrister but rather something like as I was asked I see you're interested in human rights and helping people why don't you want to be a social worker and that was the same question but posed in a different way uh, and I found that quite difficult because I had a very prescriptive answer and my answer was to there. I want to be a barrister because and the question was actually why don't you want to be this other profession Um, so yes I think it's important to have ideas and a structure that you can fall back on um, but don't be too rigid in how you answer the questions that is also because you need to know yourself and know that you'll be very nervous and your adrenaline will be going and as you said you well you'll be nervous so you might not present as well as you had done, perhaps, while you were prepping in your bedroom earlier with your answer in front of you. You
2: said that you were motoring through answering the legal question in one of your interviews. I think it was the interview at number five, in fact, you were referring to. So can you explain to our listeners what sort of thing you had in mind when you're referring to legal questions?
1: At number five, uh, we do a legal question in the sense of we have a case that we give people. I'm saying we now, I'm only sort of two years in, but number five gives a case to people and asks people to look at the case and then work out what their submissions would be were this case to go to the next level up. So in this instance it was the Court of Appeal that we were at, that was where we were at the interview apparently, Um, and we were asked to basically come up with submissions that we'd have if we were on one side. Um, So you are given 20 minutes and you prep 20 minutes of submissions. Obviously, the answer to that is you, you need to have a structure. Uh, I always use the sort of a big letter one, and then here was my submission, then two, here's my submission, and substantiate it with sort of argument. Um, but then when I got into the room, and I don't think this is unusual, they flipped the uh, submission. So they said, OK, first of all, we asked you to prep-, prep as if you were the appellant. Now you're the other side. Go. Oh, and was wow. mean It was viewers. so mean. But preempting that because I knew some chambers did that I prepared a couple of um, submissions for the other side and then all you had to do was flip your submissions if you know you were able to do so so um, don't be surprised if chambers do that all you have to do is spend a little bit of time you know just in case they do come up with the other arguments which will help your arguments anyway Um, so that's how number five does it
2: that's really good advice. I wish I'd I wish I'd known that before some of my interviews. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One of the other things that our listeners might be most worried about is advocacy exercises. Is there a way that you can prepare for an advocacy exercise?
1: So I think it depends on your area of law. So if you're applying to a very civil set, obviously you can preempt what type of advocacy exercise you'll get. Um, similarly with criminal law, you're likely to get the sort of bail applications or sentencing hearings. Um, can you tell I don't do crime <laughs> sentencing things? Um, but so you can almost preempt the type of application because there's only a few applications that are self-contained and sort of basic enough to be fair to everyone. Um, I think it, it, this sort of area is quite unfair because actually everyone who's done the BPTC has been doing this for at least a year, whereas if you're pre-BPTC, you do, you don't have, you haven't built up the sort of structural and the linguistic knowledge that might assist with this area. Um, In answer to that though, the uh, advocacy textbooks that the bar has, um, which I think are in libraries, are really useful because it just gives you the the basic knowledge of how to do um, a bail application or whatever. So you can preempt what type of thing you're going to get by virtue of where you're applying, Um, and after that all you need to know is, if it's a civil application, I think the basic test would assist. So you know, if they ask you to do something like an, uh, an interim injunction hearing, you, you can have the basic test in your head. They'll probably give it to you anyway, because that would be unfair to make you memorise the law. Um, but it might assist to just do a few basic ones. Um, and as I say again, just know that you have a time to prepare it. And all you need to do is find a structure from which to hang your answers on. Uh, and that's me particularly. I, I, I sometimes go off on a tangent, as per now. But... <laughs> having a structure to always come back to was very useful. So at the beginning saying, I have three submissions to support why this person should get bail. Um, My first submission is X, my second submission is Y, and then moving on from there. Because even if I start with X and then move off onto something else, um, you could always pull back to Y. So when I was doing an interview at a mixed set, uh, the advocacy exercise was a criminal one. And I remember being asked a very, well, I thought tricky question. After my first set of submissions, so I said I had three submissions and after my first one, they asked me quite a difficult question and that threw me a bit. But actually having the second and third submission and already teed those up uh, at the beginning was quite useful because I could sort of answer the question. I was a bit lost, but all I had to do was restart on the next set of submissions. So that was quite useful. And again, I think knowing that you are going to be nervous, accept that and have a a way, a, a tool or something to know that you can always, you know, ride the ride the storm because you're you are going to be nervous. You just need to work out how you're going to deal with those nerves.
0: I was going to ask if you have any tips for dealing with
1: nerves. Yes. So I'm very I get very nervous. I'm quite nervous right now. But um, <laughs> what what you have to do is I think know what works for you. So for me particularly, I found this on Legal Cheek actually that if you have four things that you can see in a room and you focus on those things. Uh, and then you have three things that you can hear. So you listen to the sounds in the room and you pick out three distinct things. And then I think one thing that you can smell. So I'm told, and this is, this is from the Bar Council as well, that, that mindfulness is very good. And I think that's a tool for mindfulness that actually if you ground yourself prior to an interview just sitting in the waiting room, um, then that's very useful to sort of give you perspective and help you to deal with the interview and the nerves. So that's what worked for me. I know my my best friend, who um, is now a criminal barrister, she always found it useful to go to the bathroom and stand in a power pose. Yeah. So that, that was always a good way of grounding her. There's a brilliant would feel Ted ridiculous. Ted video about power poses. <laughs> yes. With bar council, the various committees take a view on big items that are going on. So, for example, the international committee, uh, I know might produce a paper and has done for. Um, Brexit. So you can look at what the bar generally is saying by looking on the Bar Council's website. So that's in terms of knowing the context around um, this sort of question. But also, I'd say practically what I did was I preempted what was going to come up. So the Human Rights Act, I wrote a a little thing on. Um, I'm not sure Brexit was happening yet, but you could do a a little thing on Brexit and got a, a blank sheet of A4 paper uh, wrote the title at the top and then did almost a, a mind map of everything that was um, relevant to that question. And then all I had to do in interview was pull out bits of that mind map um, and regurgitate almost in a structure. So it became far less nervous when you'd already done the, the prep for it.
2: How did you decide what topics to, to pick? Because I can imagine feeling a little bit panicked at, at the thought of having to do a mind map for everything that I could think of that might might come up how did you handle that
1: so my philosophy and this is this is maybe a bit rude but my philosophy was barristers are very busy so they're not going to want to go too far into a really obscure subject because we we don't have time to do that so if you're preparing a question for an interview you're likely to choose the most obvious stuff because that's the stuff you're interested in and probably the stuff you've read so um, you're very unlikely to face a question about the I don't know, inter-American shipping contract that's just come up. And it's really interesting in a very particular um, legal magazine. Unless, of course, you're applying for that chambers, then <laughs> absolutely chambers. know that. But um, I- I- in other chambers, it's probably unlikely that you're going to be um, asked a, a really niche question. It's going to be stuff that's in the news. You've probably already heard about the stuff you'll be asked about, but it's just preparing and putting down answers to the question.
2: I think really that's is. really thank you, Alex, because I think that's very. Re- I think you're absolutely right um, about, about busy practitioners and uh, their uh, lack of imagination. Oh, no, <laughs> I wouldn't put it like that. Um, but I and I think that's actually very comforting to people because I I, I know that students do say, well, how, how on earth can I predict? And of course they can't. But mm. what you say is a very sensible strategy.
0: Yeah. One thing that some of the inns offer and most of the law schools will offer are mock interviews. Is that something you think is a useful exercise for, pupil or for pre-pupils to go through?
1: Um, yes, I think one of the hardest things of prepping for interviews and doing interviews is firstly nerves, but also for me at least it was confidence. So um, I, once, even though I would get first and second round interviews, I'd, I'd never feel like I'd deserve to be there almost so it would be like I was pretending to be a barrister but doing mock interviews in front of someone who knows what they're talking about a mentor or uh, you know someone who is either a lecturer or or maybe a barrister themselves uh, is incredibly useful obviously for the stuff around preparing what you're going to say but more than that it's giving yourself the confidence to know that you can do it and having someone objective in front of you hearing what you're saying and then afterwards saying, you did really well. Um, That does wonders for your nerves when you go in because you know, well, I'm doing well, I can do this. It's just a matter of replicating what I've already done. Um, And that's what I found useful particularly. Can I just, uh, in terms of interviews, one of the questions that always used to annoy me, but I got asked pretty much every time was, you know, the, the typical funny question that is so annoying, but you have to answer. So which biscuit would you like to be? Or um, <laughs> I got asked, after a very complicated legal question, could you now tell us a joke? Um, no. This sort of question is so annoying, and I'm not sure how it shows your legal prowess or your ability to be a barrister. But uh, if, if, if it didn't happen so often, I wouldn't have mentioned it. But you will get asked this sort of classic in the lift question uh, at some chambers. So. All I can say is you can't really prepare for it because it's off the wall. It's crazy. But if you don't have an answer for the question, um, you know, all I can say is you can prepare by thinking what biscuit you're going to be or (laughs) what breed of dog is your favourite or something like that. It's a ridiculous question, but you might get asked about it. All I can say is don't let it throw you. Um, Take a breath, maybe a sip of water. um, And if you genuinely can't think of an answer, just say, oh, gosh, I, I can't think, but I would, I'm sure come up with a you know something better if it weren't an interview.
0: Alex do you have any final advice for our listeners on interviews? Uh,
1: Yes so when you're preparing for an interview um, it's very easy just to look at the cases that members of chambers have been involved in I think as a junior member of chambers nowadays we're expected to be a lot more aware of our marketing Um, so in terms of being willing to look at seminars that you could do or seeing that members of chambers write articles etc, showing a willingness to be involved in that sort of activity can be quite useful because it shows an awareness of the reality of practicing as a junior barrister. Um, So I said in a couple of interviews I see members of chambers are encouraged to write articles about current affairs and things like that uh, and people across the bench from me were looking quite sort of impressed. I don't know if they actually were or whether it, it was a sort of a question that um, people answer in the same way a lot. But I think being realistic about how hard it is to practice at the self-employed bar um, is quite useful because it shows that you're not going to just be a drain on Chamber's resources, you're there to contribute. Um, and I think willingness to, to do seminars or articles or even organise you know, networking events with solicitors can be quite useful, uh, and just mentioning that.
0: Great. Alex Isneros, thank you very much indeed.
2: We heard some more on this issue from Catherine Magaghi, QC. Quite often, I think it's right to say at interviews, people will be asked why they want to be a barrister. Do you have any tips for answering that old chestnut?
6: It's a good idea to draw on the experience that you have had through mini-pupillages, through court visits, through marshalling with a judge, anything like that, so that you show you can show that you do actually have a real reason for wanting to be a barrister.
0: One of the things that our listeners might be most nervous about, I know I certainly was, is preparing for legal questions, whether those be problem questions or questions about a particular case. Do you have any advice for preparing for such questions?
6: I think it is very difficult. I think most chambers will be sensible enough to recognise that their candidates will have a whole range of experience, from very little knowledge of the law for those doing a GDL to those who may have been in practice as solicitors for 10 or 15 years. If your set is a specialist in a particular field, then it clearly would be sensible to look at the most recent developments in the law in that field. If on the other hand, you're going to a general common law set, you could be asked absolutely anything from a case concerning crime to a case concerning employment law. And I think the reality is it's not practical to do very much. My advice would be always when faced with a question to which you're not confident of the answer, to take your time. There is no such thing as a pause that is too long because your interviewers can't tell whether you are just considering the problem in depth and working out precisely the best way to answer it or whether you're utterly panic-stricken
0: and frantically thinking of something
6: to put into your empty brain
0: such great advice (laughs) and one thing that I experienced when I was going through the process of interviews myself and I now see as I'm sitting on the other side of the table is that it's well worth students preparing topical issues because actually often what the barristers will think about when they're setting those questions those standard questions will be what's been in the news recently what cases have they done do you think that's good advice to keep up to date with current law It definitely is.
6: Um, One question we ask all our applicants is if you could change one aspect of the law, what would it be? And we do see that as a good question in the sense that it ought to identify an area in which the candidate is genuinely interested and about which he or she can talk with some confidence. And it also does demonstrate to us the extent of the candidate's genuine interest in the sort of work we do.
0: Having spoken to you earlier in the series about your work with animals, I suspect that the law that you would change would be the Dangerous Dogs Act. Absolutely. (laughs) Is there anything that particularly impresses you in interviews?
6: Yes, the candidates who have done a great deal of research about chambers. Some of them can tell us about the most recent cases in which we've been involved and actually read them. There is a risk, though, if you're going to do that sort of thing, you really need to know what you're talking about. One candidate a couple of years ago came in and said that he had been absolutely fascinated by a case of X. As it happened, I'd done that case. I'm not sure he knew that, that it would be someone on the interviewing panel who'd done the case. So in the hope of settling him down and making him feel reassured, I said, oh, that's great. Now, what was it that really interested you? And he hadn't the faintest idea He'd obviously just pinched it from the website very quickly before coming into the interview. Oh, no. And that was awful, and it had exactly the opposite effect from the one that I was trying to create, which is to make him feel better. Some candidates are staggeringly well-prepared in that they arrive early and ask our receptionist for the names of the interviewers and then look us up before coming into the interview. Wow. And then tell us about our practices (laughs) which does show enthusiasm I find it sometimes slightly spooky you feel rather as though you're being stalked yes but it does show a a real determination to succeed
0: so perhaps do that research but then use it with a lightness of touch I think so yes Catherine McGahey do you have any final advice or words of encouragement for our listeners
6: it's a horribly competitive world but it is a fantastic job to do and if you have the enthusiasm for it then it's worth making every effort you possibly can to pursue it. I've been doing the job now for 29 years, and there has not been a day in which I've regretted it, nor a day in
2: which I wished I was doing something else.
0: Catherine McGaghy, thank you very much for talking to the Pupilature Podcast.
2: We spoke to Barrister James Wakefield, Leader of the Council of the Inns of Court and Dean of the Inns of Court College of Advocacy, about advocacy experience earlier in the series but we could not resist sharing some of his brilliant tips for answering interview questions and how to handle sofa interviews and, at the other end of the spectrum, attrition interviews.
0: So, James Wakefield, we had asked you to come in and talk about advocacy, which is your specialist subject, but you also know a lot about interviews. What could you tell our our listeners about interviews?
7: Yes, I think the main piece of advice I've got is that whenever you're being asked a question in an interview, you're always being asked whether you're going to make the best pupil. And so the way that translates, if, for example, they ask you about your dissertation, they're not actually per se interested in your dissertation. And so hear the question like this. Tell me about your dissertation such that I can know you're going to make the best pupil. So don't just tell them about your dissertation and bore them about the Tudor (laughs) Times endlessly. But the secret in preparing is to think, what does a barrister do? How can I use my dissertation as evidence that I'm going to make the best pupil? And so then you might think, well, a barrister needs to be able to research, a barrister be, needs to be able to write clearly, a barrister needs to be able to pull together lots of information, etc., etc. So do tell them a little about Henry VIII or whatever it is, but also at the same time be clearly ta- describing in your answer a really good pupil barrister that's a great piece of advice
2: the question that everyone is asked for first of all they are asked on their portal application form but then they 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 will be asked at some stage or another in in their interview is uh, why do you want to be a
7: barrister are there any tips that you have for answering that question Yes, people answer the why do you want to be a barrister question really badly. And what they tend to do is to say, because I like advocacy, because I like being uh, in an independent profession, uh, and because I like the intellectual challenge. It tells the the selection panel absolutely nothing because everybody writes that and you can read it everywhere. I think what you need to do is really look inside yourself in a sense and think, well, why do you want to be a barrister? And what you'll tend to find is that you have a story, you, you have something that caught your eye, and tell that story. So if, for example, it was as you were a teenager, your family had litigation trouble, and, and you saw your parents instructing barristers or whatever, then tell that story. If at university um, somebody came along and did a talk to the bar, and, and suddenly it was like a light bulb going on, then explain that. Explain the way in which you got to the point of realising you want to be an advocate and the intellectual challenge and being independent. Uh, and I think that's when it starts to lift, when you're really talking about yourself rather than abstract concepts that we can all read somewhere else.
2: Have you got any, any advice for our listeners on how to prepare for legal questions in, in an interview?
7: So preparing for legal questions is really difficult. So the first thing I I would say is remember that. It's not easy. I think the the other thing I would bear in mind as you're preparing for a legal question is very often it's not per se getting the answer right that is the key thing. I mean, getting it seriously wrong is never going to help. But if you can get it a bit wrong, but nevertheless you are clear, structured, and can defend a point reasonably then you'll do okay. So it's keeping calm and bearing in mind it's not got to be perfect. You've just got to be structured and ordered. That will tend to help you.
2: Is it what what you're saying, James, that what you need to try and do is show the panel, the interview panel, how your brain is working and to try and express yourself clearly so that... If all else fails, at least they can see that you've got a logical, structured way of thinking and that you can articulate
7: that. Yes, I, and, and I think it's, it's also showing them that you can manage the pressure.
2: Yes, I see. Yes, yes.
7: So sometimes it's, it's I think, helpful in the interview to say things like this. Um, I don't know that area of law, but I would guess from first principles, I need to be thinking about X and Y. Um, Or you might say, I wasn't quite sure what the question meant at this line, and I've taken it to mean this. Now, the other thing about interviews is is they tend to be on a spectrum. At one end, it's the very friendly, sort of sofa interview almost, you know, come in and sit down, and, you know, I'm Jim, and this is, you know. And at the other end, there are are attrition interviews, uh, where it can be quite an aggressive atmosphere. I actually think those are probably not very good interviews, but they're there. And I think you as an interviewee, whether or not you can be deceived by both approaches or, or, or you can get complacent, shall we say, yes. because of either, uh, certainly the safer approach. And I think wherever on the spectrum your interview is, the, the best way forward is to try and stay in the middle, a sort of friendly, open calmness. Now, that's easier said than done in an interview. But if you're practising, it's practising that. So even in the face of feeling you're getting the problem question wrong or you don't know where they're driving at with an interview question or everything you say seems to be wrong it's trying to keep that gentle smile and that calmness about you is the trick to interviews i think
2: i think also i find when i'm sitting on an interview panel that i'm impressed with candidates who do interact who as you say are able to take the question that's being given and shape it a bit themselves yes. in order to place their response into a context. And I
7: I think that shows confidence as well. I think the magic happens in an interview, and there can be a magic moment where everyone in the room feels this is good, is when um, you feel that the candidate is telling you what they think. They're not telling you what they they think an interviewee should tell you. Yes. So it's not just rote, learned interview technique. You're actually a real... There's a real conversation going on here. Absolutely, yes. And so having the courage to say well, I'd never agreed with that, or I would take it in this way, it, it is it sometimes pays off.
2: Definitely, because I think that that conveys a huge amount of confidence, which is
0: partly what, what you want to see in your, in your pupil. In the attrition-type interviews that you've described, one thing that happens a lot in interviews is you give your answer and a member of the panel says, you've said the answer's X, but isn't it actually Y. How do you suggest that candidates deal with that sort of approach?
7: So the first thing is to remember they are testing you, and this is a good thing. So they're not actually getting at you, per se, though it can emotionally feel like that. And so now this is an opportunity. And I think, really, you you have to exercise a judgment here. Often it's good for a while to defend your position and do it uh, calmly. But there may come a point where it becomes an untenable position and it's judging the moment to we say well now that you've said that um, I can see that another approach might be and so it's learning a few phrases that are helpful uh, such as um, on mature consideration and that's a, a nice way of saying I got it wrong first time now I'm having another go but it's just a nice way of, tran- of, of moving from a sort of dodgy territory in the interview if you, if you were to a, a fresh bit of ground that you think may, may be better
0: so it's about standing your ground if that's what's required, but being prepared to admit that you're wrong if you have actually reconsidered. Yes. Super. Is there anything else about interviews that you think
7: our listeners would be interested to hear? I think it's important not to reveal that you failed. So sometimes when you're interviewing candidates, you ask a question, and their body language, their demeanour, they sort of slump in front of you almost. <laughs> and they've told you that they've failed. That's not really very helpful for the interviewer because Don't you're <laughs> bringing back
2: awful memories.
7: <laughs> <laughs> and so again it's that like keeping that in the calm middle place so even when you feel like you're talking nonsense you look like you're talking sense.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much
7: okay.
0: Our next guest, Karen Stein QC is a barrister at 11 KBW. Today we asked her for her advice about interviews coming to speak to us at the Pupillage Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm a barrister, obviously.
5: I've been in practice for just over 20 years now, I think. I'm a public lawyer, so my my work is generally in the areas of um, public law and human rights. This
2: episode is all about interviews. Yes. So our listener has received an email that they've been waiting for for some time, inviting them to interview, what's next? What should they do next? Uh, It's really helpful to
5: take a look at uh, whether there are any criteria for applicants that the chambers itself puts out there on its website. So I mean, for example, on, on my chamber's website, for, for pupillage applicants, if they look at it, we say what we're looking for. And so, you know, we, we would describe the main qualities which we think are necessary for a successful barrister as an analytical mind, an ability to express ideas clearly and persuasively, both orally and in writing, the ability to think under pressure, a commitment to hard work an organised approach to practice and a capacity to understand and show understanding of the needs and problems of those for whom and with whom they work. And so when you're preparing for an interview, you want to be thinking about how you can demonstrate that you meet those kinds of criteria. And I mean, other sets may, may put it a bit differently, but I imagine for most sets, those are the kinds of criteria. And so you want to be thinking about, well, what have I done? What examples can I put forward that are going to show that, I, that I'm that i what they're looking for? A frequent question is, you know, so what's your main weakness? And that's always a really difficult question <laughs> because you somehow have to... Get across something that is actually probably rather more of a strength than a weakness without it sounding, you know, like Like you you cheated, like you completely (laughs) cheated and failed to answer the question. So you have to. It has to be genuine, but it's also got to show good judgment because, you know, you can't say, well, actually, I'm bone lazy. I can't be bothered to get out of bed till 11 <laughs> a.m. Uh, you know, that is not going to show good judgment or that you in any way uh, are actually suited to the bar. So you need to get across something um, that, you know, it is genuine um but also shows that you know you actually still meet the uh you you meet the skills that that are required uh so it is quite a tricky one but for that reason it's one that
0: you might well be asked Uh, our listeners will no doubt be realizing that this process is different in every chambers and i think your chambers is one that has gives students something in advance of the interview. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So we, well, first we will will
5: look at the um, application forms. um, And so then from all of the applications we receive, we will filter down uh, to then invite um, a number currently about 60 or 70 or so, for a, for a relatively short first interview. And that one... Gosh, as many as 60 or 70. Um, yes. And so for, for um, those interviews, which we're, we're in the midst of at the moment, we send out um, a case um, for people to look at um, a couple of days before the interview. And, and so the focus is really um, on looking at, you know, their abilities in terms of legal analysis and judgment uh, and their ability to, you know, present an argument persuasively um, and, you know, speak well.
2: What about advocacy questions? Because uh, many of our listeners will be aware that sets will present them with an advocacy exercise. Have you got any advice for how to succeed in those circumstances?
5: Yes, quite often that there will be different types of advocacy exercise I mean it's the, it's the kind of thing we've done in my set where sometimes there will be um you, you might be given an exercise about an hour before the interview and and you, so you, you get a relatively small set of papers uh and you need to then um present the argument for one side or, or another to the panel as if they are your your court um, and so that's one form of, of advocacy exercise one of the key things I think is to um, work out as clearly as possible um, what your arguments are going to be so that you can give a, a sort of pricey at the beginning. You know, I have three points. These are my three points. I will now go on to develop them. That kind of thing really helps um, the, the interview panel to understand where you're going with your argument and to continue to follow it as you are m- making progress through it. So, so if you can sort of, you know, summarise at the outset...
2: Uh, that will really help. It sounds to me that in order to be able to do that successfully during the preparation period, you should probably make sure that you think about your argument for a certain period of time, but then perhaps leave a period of time afterwards to make sure that you've decided exactly how you want to actually present it. So you're not just analysing right up to the moment you walk through the door, but you do devote some time to the presentational aspect of it, which means that you're going to be in a better position to do as you've described, Karen, and and say well, I'm going to make these three points because you've you, you you know very well that that's what you're about to do.
5: Absolutely, and I mean I think it can be tempting, particularly if you're under time pressure, if you if you've only been given it a very short period of time um, before the interview, it can be tempting to spend you know, sort of all of that time trying to read everything and understand it all um, but I think you're, you're absolutely right you need to spend a certain amount of that time um, actually working out what you are going to say and how you are going to present it um, and depending upon the, the type of exercise I mean if you've been given say a contractual example you want to have you want to think a bit about what you want to take the panel to because you know it's like a a legal exercise so if it's a contractual exercise you are going to want to take the panel to certain contractual provisions and it's very likely that that the actual contract and the terms are going to be important so you want to think about well you know am i going to take them to, you know, term 3A or whatever it is, and what am I going to say about that?
0: It takes me back to one of my pupillage interviews where I was given an enormous contract about 20 minutes before the interview, and of course the answers that I needed were all on the last page, so (laughs) I think my top tip for anyone facing that would be to skim-read the document before you start looking at it in any detail.
5: Yes, I I think that's right. Take take a, a... skim through work out um as quickly as you can the sort of the the totality the, the the big picture of what it is you've been given and there may be some things there that you think well okay I can probably skip through those relatively quickly whereas there there may be other um parts of the paperwork you've been given you think okay well this is going to matter this is going to be important thank you ever so much for coming to speak to us we very much appreciate it it's, My pleasure, and to anyone listening, very
0: good luck with any interviews you may have. Thank you. Another thing that we heard unanimous views on was the answer to this question. It's quite common at the end
2: of a pupillage interview for the panel to ask the candidate if he or she has any questions for the panel. Do you have any strong feelings on on that question
0: and, and the right way to answer it?
6: Unless it is a really good question... Don't
0: ask. And you you come to the end of your interview, and the panel says, "Do you have any questions for us?" What's the right answer? There is no right answer to this.
5: I think that's a question that applicants probably shouldn't worry too too much about. Certainly, when whenever we have asked it as a panel, it's been a genuine question, um, and we don't mind at all when people say. Actually, I don't have any questions.
1: I, I think this is a danger question. So if you do have a question for them, of course, feel free to ask it. Uh, you need to make sure that the question isn't something that you could have found out on their website or actually just reading around the chambers. So um, a question along the lines of, do you do X You know, practice area? People are going to look at each other and say, yeah, that, that's on our website, but if it's something like, you know, what's the fee structure for junior members of chambers? If you genuinely need to know that in making your decision there and then in you know, the first round of interview, then ask it. I would say, in my opinion, it's better not to ask a question at that stage because of course, if you do make, get the offer, Anything that you had niggling in the back of your head can be asked at that stage. So if if they offer you pupillage, then you can say, thank you very much, that's great. I wonder if you can answer a couple of questions as to the, the, the practicalities moving forward now.
3: If there is a burning question that you've looked at the website, you've looked through the books and you can't find an answer to, then ask it. But sometimes less is more. Say nothing if you've got no real burning question. Yeah. Be genuine then. Exactly, be exactly. It's OK to say, no, I have nothing to ask.
5: You shouldn't feel under any pressure at all to um, ask questions, so don't feel that, that you're going to be in any trouble if you can't think of a clever question to ask the panel.
2: Kate Grange QC from 39 Essex gave us some really thoughtful observations on how to tackle pupillage interviews. And what about the advocacy exercise, if, if I mean, not all sets do an advocacy exercise, but it's very common? Have you any advice on how to prepare for that? Because that can sometimes be quite a terrifying part of the interview. Absolutely.
8: I think it's all about staying very cool and very calm and keeping it simple. So if you're asked to do an advocacy exercise they'll have selected something which they think you can digest which by definition will probably be a fairly simple exercise but then it's about distilling down um, you'll give probably have a limited time but picking three or four key points, structuring them really well, so you begin, so you have a clear structure to the way in which you're going to present your submissions. Give yourself that framework to work in, and it will just come across as quite impressive, just the very fact you've tried to structure it, um, you know, aside from the substance of the argument, And then obviously try and make sure you're addressing the most important points first. And if there are more peripheral points, you leave those to later. It's fairly basic stuff. Um, The main thing is just to try and take a deep breath, lots of big breathing, keep calm, um, and allow yourself some thinking
0: time to give some
8: structure to what you're going to present in your advocacy.
0: You say it's basic advice. I think putting your best points first is really good advice that I try to remember and remind myself, even in throughout my career, when I'm making any sort of application to put your best points first. And when teaching students bail applications or pleaser mitigation, it's something I say repeatedly. So I think it's I think it's really good advice both for your application forms for questions and interview and for your career beyond. Should you try and shake hands with the panel?
8: I think it depends on the layout of the room. If you're all in a small room and they're right there. Um, I don't see a problem with shaking hands, but if they're in a a distance away from you, I wouldn't make a forced effort to go and shake their hand. You could just nod and say hello, and just politely sit down. So
0: again, probably not a right or wrong. Maybe see how it's you have to judge it.
8: Yeah, and and different sets may have different practices, so you just have to kind of, yeah, judge those moments as you go. I think,
2: Kate, are there any common mistakes that you see time and time again in when interviewing? that you can warn our listeners off? I think not listening to the question. Quite a lot of
8: people, I think, have decided that there are certain things they want to say to us. Yes. And that's fine to have your own ideas about what you want to get across. But remember, people have read your form and they will have read it carefully. So listen to the question. Quite a lot of people just don't listen hard enough. uh, And take your time people rush into the, the answers to questions very quickly without really thinking and we never mind if people want to just pause for, you know, a few seconds, even, a, you know, what might feel like a long pause before delivering
0: your answer. Um, nobody's rushing you. I think that's really going to be helpful for people to know. Yeah. Do you have any final advice or words of encouragement you'd like to pass on to our listeners? I think um, be brave. Um, I came from a background um
8: that where nobody in my family had ever been in the law. I'd come from a very um, kind of difficult comprehensive school background, um, and I I was very nervous about the bar to begin with. I wasn't sure I fitted in to it, um, but I then really enjoyed the work I saw. People were very friendly, and I built up from there. So don't assume that everybody is different to you. The bar is full of whole multitude of people from many different backgrounds and and it's a very exciting place so and there's no normal and so i think be brave and and um, ambitious
2: sometimes it's about being bold and brave kate grange qc thank you ever so much for speaking to the pupilish podcast
0: b i can't believe we've come to the end of the series
2: Yes, we hope that the podcast has been useful to all of you listening, from the sixth form student contemplating a career as a barrister, to mature students considering a change of career,
0: to those of you applying for pupillage for the sixth time. We hope you've enjoyed hearing from our guests as much as we've enjoyed talking to them, and that you leave feeling better informed, excited and inspired about life at the bar. It really is the most wonderful career.
2: All the hard work and the agonising process of getting pupillage is definitely worth it in the end. We thought that we would sign off with a reading list of some of our favourite books that have helped us
0: with our careers. First, if you're hungry for more of the sort of advice you've heard in this podcast, check out Adam Kramer's Bewigged and Bewildered. Wondering about the basics of law and how our legal system works, try Glanville Williams' seminal book, Learning the Law. It's small enough to pop in your pocket, but chock full of essentials. It's a must-read for any wannabe lawyer. Desperate to learn more about advocacy? Have a look at the awesome Devil's Advocate by Ian Morley. I reread this every few years. It's that good. And this list would not be complete without the greatest book ever written about the importance of fearlessly taking cases that feel doomed even before they have started, and about the importance of the cab rank rule, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. We hope that this is not goodbye, but only au revoir. If you have questions or topics
2: that you would like addressed in the next series of the Pupilage podcast, please email us at
0: pupillagepodcast at gmail.com. We have a shared file that's already bulging with ideas for a second series. So, if you would like to hear more on such subjects as the barrister-solicitor divide, coming to the bar as a second career, third sixes or changes to the BPTC, please write and let us know. Wishing you all success, and of course
2: Pupillage, for 2019. This is the Pupillage Podcast, signing out. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast
0: with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production, support and music by Alex Dopirala. Huge thanks to the wonderful team here at Middle Temple. James Rogerson for helping us with the logistics. Darren Latty for coffees and pastries. And Colin Davidson for his enthusiasm, encouragement and awe-inspiring Little Black Book. We'd also like to thank all our clerks and our senior clerk, Mark Waller, who've not disowned us for sneaking off down the road to Middle Temple for recording sessions. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. If you have questions you would like answered in future episodes or want to give us some feedback, please email us at pupillagepodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast
2: without the greatest book ever written, The Path to Pupillage. <laughs>